Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. There's a story told of four expectant fathers prior to the time when dads were in the delivery room. So they were waiting out in the waiting area. Some of you older codgers can probably remember this. You didn't get to be there when your children were born. You were out in the waiting room and the nurse would come to you. So it was that kind of time. And the nurse came out and said to the first man, congratulations, sir, you have just fathered twins. And he was so excited. He said, what a coincidence. I work for the Minnesota twins. A little while later, the nurse came out again, and and she said to the second man, she said, sir, you're the father of triplets. And wow, he said, what a coincidence. I work for the 3M Corporation. A few minutes later, he came out to the third guy, and he said, the nurse said, you know, I can't imagine there's going to be a coincidence here, but sir, you had quadruplets. He said, don't tell me. He said, I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. And at that, the fourth guy fell out. And uh, when they brought him back, back from, uh, from his faint, he said, oh, I should have never taken that job at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> every birth, every birth is an amazing thing. And I had the opportunity and the privilege of being there when six human beings came into the world made in the image of God. And I, I think I got to catch some of them, whatever that means. But, um, but I was there for all six of those. And each birth was an absolute wonder to me. But no birth has been more amazing than, or more filled with wonder than the birth of the Lord Jesus. And it's not because he came into the world any different than any of us came into the world if we were born the natural way, but because of who he was before he was born. That's why his birth was such a wonder. Last Sunday, we began our study of, of John's gospel. If you were here, we entitled that talk, Jesus Before Jerusalem, I mean, before Bethlehem, excuse me, because Bethlehem was where Jesus was born, but Jesus existed before Bethlehem, before he was born. In, in, his, in, in the first five verses of John, John told us seven things about Jesus. Do you remember them? Just by way of review, he told us that Jesus was eternal. He starts off, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And so we said beginning meant before the beginning of anything Jesus was. So he's eternal. He is the communication of God. John chose the word word, logos, meaning the communication or, or the speaking of God. So Jesus was the communication of God. Thirdly, he was different from God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God. He was different than God. But then he, John goes on to say that he is God. He was with the Word, and he, excuse me, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we said, he made all things. He's the creator of all things, John said. He said, Jesus is life. Excuse me, yeah, life. He gives life. And then he is light, which we said, he is truth. And as uh, we mentioned last week, John doesn't have a, a birth narrative in his gospel. In other words, John doesn't tell us anything about 
Joseph and Mary and the travel to Bethlehem and, you know, no room in the inn and the killing of the children afterwards trying to kill Jesus. John doesn't include any of that. But what we're reading here today is something like John's prologue to the life of Jesus, where John is going to give us the significance uh, and the importance of Jesus' life. We don't actually jump into the life of Jesus till next Sunday. We'll, we'll, John will begin to talk about the life and ministry of Jesus, but we're not going to get there today. No, nonetheless, what we're going to talk about this morning is still foundation. This is still John's foundation for us. So we begin our study this morning with verse 6 through verse 18 of John. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. It will not be on the screen. You'll need a Bible. And by the way, you should always have a Bible on Sundays. I, I do my best to teach you, to teach us from the Bible. So grab a Bible. If you don't have one, there's some on the back table in the, in the foyer back there. And you can grab your own Bible and have it forever. So, so grab a Bible if you don't have one. All right, verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So last week it was Jesus before Bethlehem. If I was to entitle this talk, we'd call it Jesus Before Ministry, because we're still talking about Jesus before he actually begins uh, his work, before he begins his ministry. And as John starts off, we're, we're going to divide the text into really three parts, and then each one of those parts will have some subparts under it as well. So hopefully your mind will be able to catch these pegs on which to hang our thinking. The first one is God sends a spotlight. Before Jesus ever begins to do any ministry, God sends someone who is going to spotlight Jesus, someone who's going to point him out, someone who's going to be a witness to him. So in verse 6, we read, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all who might, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Before Jesus began to serve, to to teach, to preach, to heal, to make the claims that he made as being God, all of that kind of stuff. God sent a man, a man named John, and John came ahead of Jesus to point him out. John came ahead of Jesus to be, to spotlight him, if you would. I, you know, we're in deer season now, and I, I often wonder how many hunters are out there spotlighting at night, trying to shine their lights on a deer, and, uh, and hopefully not shoot him, just find out where he lives, right? So, uh, 
John was like that. He was spotlighting Jesus. Now, John, the John that John is talking about is not the author of this book, right? That's John the Apostle. The John he's talking about is known in history as John the Baptizer because that is one of the primary things he did. He came on the scene months before Jesus came into his ministry, and he began to preach, and he began to say, and we'll see more of this in, in, in next Sunday, but he began to preach and say, hey, prepare the way because the Messiah is coming, the king that we've been waiting for, the, the anointed one of God. He is just around the corner, and he's about to come forward, so prepare your heart for him. Get ready for him. And if people were willing to listen to John the baptizer, John would say, Come into this water and let me baptize you as a symbol of your repentance, as a symbol of washing away your sin and turning back towards God. When Jesus came on the scene and actually began to minister, John the baptizer was already very, very famous. And many, many people were going out to hear him speak and to be baptized by him. When Jesus comes along at some point in his ministry, not right away, but uh, at some point John will be arrested. And when that happens, John the baptizer will be arrested. And when that happens, Jesus will say, of men born of women, there is no greater man than this John. Now, whether he meant in all of history or whether he meant just alive at that moment, you know, I'm not sure. But, but his point was that John was a great man. In fact, Jesus would say, if you can understand this, he's really Elijah that the Bible promises is coming before me. Now, not that Jesus was, um, was Elijah. He wasn't. We'll, we'll see that again next week as well. John, John the baptizer wasn't Elijah come back, but, but he came in the spirit of Elijah. There had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. That doesn't make sense to us. We don't really understand that because, you know, I, I guess we just don't live in the time that Israel did. We, we weren't God's chosen people in that sort of way. But God would send prophets to his people, that this nation that he had called and set apart. And for 400 years, he had not sent one man who came forward to say, I am a prophet from God. I have a word from God for you. So for 400 years, they, that's a long time. Our nation is what, 250, 275? I mean, I mean, that's, you know, that's a long time. Nobody's come forward saying they're speaking for God until John comes on the scene. We actually know quite a bit about John. He was six months older than Jesus. He's actually kin to Jesus, uh, a second cousin, I guess he would be. Uh, his birth is supernaturally brought about by God, though not like Jesus. Jesus' birth was very different, as we have already been alluding to and we'll get to in just a moment. John's birth was supernatural in that his parents were very old and had not been able to have children. And I guess they just assumed we never will. And the Bible tells us that God made it so that John would be born. So whatever God did, uh, it, he was born the natural way. Zacharias provided the, the part that he provides, and, and Elizabeth provided the part that she provides, and, and John was born, right? But God had something to do with that. His birth was supernatural, and that he was not expected to be. John would begin preaching before Jesus. And again, like I already said, he was preaching, get ready, get ready, Jesus is, is coming. He would soon be arrested after Jesus came on the scene. He would be arrested by Herod when Herod's wife would take advantage of his lust and his pride. And uh, after he made a foolish promise to his stepdaughter, uh, his, uh, his wife would ask for, for John's head and, and Herod would kill him. 
uh, because of what he had promised uh, his, his wife about a year, a year before Jesus would, would be dying. John's preaching affected many people. You may not know this, but many people, before Jesus came on the scene, many people heard John preach. And they took John's message, and they left, and they began to preach it. They believed it, and they began to preach it, and they began to tell others. We have in the book of Acts, later on, when Jesus, after he's died, risen from the dead, founded his church, they're going out. You know, Paul is going out, and he leads um, Ananias and Sapphira to the Lord. Then they go over to Ephesus, and while, not Ananias and Sapphira, I'm sorry, um, help me out. Who, who's the couple that he leads? The <laughs> Priscilla and Achilla. Sorry, sorry. Mental slip there. Achilla and Priscilla. Remember, he leads them to, to the Lord. Then they go out and they lead Apollos to the Lord. Anybody remember Apollos? Anybody remember what Apollos was preaching? He was preaching the baptism of John. He was preaching what John had been saying, that Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, get ready. So Apollos is out preaching this, and then, and then when, when he meets uh, Achilla and Priscilla, they say, wait a minute, Apollos, he's already come. And, and, and Apollos believes, and he becomes this great preacher of the gospel that Jesus has already come, that what John had promised has already been fulfilled. But he's not alone. In Acts chapter 19, the next chapter, we find Paul meeting a bunch of men in Ephesus who have know only the baptism of John. They, they, they believed John. They were baptized, preparing their hearts for the Messiah. And Paul says, you know, and what were you guys baptized? And they said, John's baptism. And he said, oh, let me tell you, Messiah's already come. The fulfillment of John's promise uh, has already come to pass. And so, so John's message went out from a lot of people. And so John was a really important person. And evidently, based on John the Apostle's writing, some people thought that John was the Messiah. And so John, the apostle, makes it clear. He says, John the baptizer was not the light. He was the spotlight pointing people to the light, but he was not the ultimate light. So that brings us to the second part in John's, John's progression of thought. God sends the true light. God sends the true light. And picking up on the person of Jesus from last week, John says, John the baptizer wasn't the true light, but Jesus is the true light. And he begins to tell us, just like he did last week, again, he begins to tell us things about Jesus. So let's look at them. Here's the first one. Jesus is the true light. Verse 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. This is just like last week, right? This is just a, re a repetition of what John said a couple of verses earlier, a couple of lines earlier. Light here is a metaphor for truth, for what is real. And so John is telling us, again, Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is reality. Now, let's face it, everyone. Listen to me. Every religious claim makes the same, does it not? I mean, the, the Muslims, the Buddhists, everybody, every ism out there would say, this is the truth. Well, that's what, that's what John is claiming about Jesus, that he is the real truth. Now, I don't know if you've ever considered this. I've said it before, but for some of you that might be, might be new or maybe hearing this for the first time, I want to tell you something that you need to grasp hold of. All religious claims may be wrong and untrue, including Christianity, Okay. But all religious claims cannot all be true. They may all be wrong, but they can't all be true. We live in a day of religious pluralism where everybody says, hey, religious claims are just religious claims and, and they're all equally valid. Not true, everyone. 
Religious claims cannot all be true. Now I, now, I happen to believe that Jesus is the true light. I happen to believe that Jesus is the truth of God. I happen to believe he's reality. But not all religious claims can be true. And, and let me say this, a determination needs to be made by every one of you about whether Jesus is the true light or whether he isn't, Okay. Every one of you has got to make that decision at some point whether or not Jesus is the true light or whether he's not. The second thing that John says here is that God sent him into the world. There was a true light which coming into the world. Jesus was outside of time and outside of the world and outside of the universe in in his space, in God's space. And wherever God's space is, I'm not sure where it is, but wherever God's space was, that's where Jesus was. And God sent Jesus from his space to our space. Now, Ann and I have had uh, DirecTV for, for three months, and uh, we don't have it anymore. We had it for three months, and during that time, we watched HGTV every night. And we watched Flip or Flop, and what else did we watch? Uh, just, everyone that's out there, that's what we watched, right? And one of the things that she and I noted was, was that on every HGTV show, this is what they say, oh, this is a beautiful space. Oh, I like this space. This would be a great space for my children. And you all watch those shows? Just you listen for, this is a wonderful space. Well, here's what I want to say to you. Jesus and God were in their space. And then he created this wonderful space that we call our universe and our world where we live. And then Jesus left his space to enter into our space. And that's what John is saying, that God left his space and entered into our space. Number three, John says, the light came to shine on every man. Verse nine, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And the Jews thought that Messiah was coming into the world only to enlighten them. It was all about them. John says, the light came to enlighten every man, all men. I really believe this. I think it was, um, oh, help me out, the pastor of uh, Willow Creek, Bill Hybel. I think Bill Hybel said this, but I remember when I heard it and it just kind of latched onto my heart. You've never looked into the eyes of a man or a woman that God doesn't love, that God doesn't desire him or her, and for whom Jesus died. And I really believe that. And I think that's what John is saying here. Jesus, let me read it again. There, there was this true light which come, coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus came to enlighten every man. He goes on, Jesus made the world into which he came. We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, but in, in the context, here's what he says. He was uh, coming into the world, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. And so, and so Jesus made the world, everyone. In this space that he, into which he came, Jesus created it. He made it. He spoke it into existence. He was the author, the designer, the implementer of, of this universe in which we now live. Number five, but the world he came to didn't know him. That's what the text says. It says that uh, he created the world, and into the world he came, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, 
This is, this is something to think about. You know, God made the world. He foretold through prophets that he was coming. But when he came, when he came, he came to this obscure peasant family in a backside village. And I've written in my notes with no fanfare. Okay. But this morning when I was practicing, the Lord said, no, that's not true. There was some fanfare. Anybody remember the fanfare? Fanfare was the angels, right, who came to a little shepherd team out in the field watching over their flock by night and said to them, glory to God, everything God's promised is here, the Messiah is here. So there was a little bit of fanfare, but there wasn't a lot of fanfare. And those shepherds ran off to Bethlehem to see this thing that the angels had told them about. So there was a little bit of fanfare, but Jesus basically came into the world and the world didn't know it. The God who created all things, the God who created you, the God who created me, the God who created the universe by his will and by his word had come into this world, had come into his creation, had become part of his creation, and the creation didn't know it. The world didn't know it. That's what John says. John goes on, number six, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus was born Jewish. He was a son of Abraham. And, and I don't know how many people understood that now. We get it now. But Jesus is the answer to God's promise to Abraham at the very beginning. You remember God promises to Abraham. He says, listen, I am going to make out of you this great nation. And, and out of you will come nations, but they'll become this one nation. And, and then he says, and out of you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham is this Boy born to an obscure family in a backwood village. I mean, Jesus is God's answer to that. That through Jesus, all the nations would be blessed. And so Jesus came first to the Jewish people. He came first to the descendants of Israel, of, of, of Isaac and of Abraham. He came to them first. Jesus said it many times in his ministry. I've come first to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, now this is what Jesus did say. He did say, now when I am lifted up, when I'm lifted up, and he's talking about the cross, it's evident. When I am lifted up on that cross, I will begin, I will draw all men to myself. At that point, I'm, you know, you're to take the message to the whole world at that point. But right now, I have come first to the lost sheep of Israel, to, to the descendants of Abraham. And John tells us, yet they did not receive him. Came to them first. He started there, but they did not receive him. And not only did they not receive him, they rejected him. They scorned him. They despised him. They eventually murdered him by crucifixion using Rome to do so. So they rejected the Lord. They rejected the Savior. As a people, the leadership of Israel, and, and many, many, many of the folks in, in Israel, they rejected and scorned the Savior. Not all of them did. Some of them, some of them had faith. Some of them were already the faithful Jews. They were already the faithful Israel. Listen, in your Bibles, and I've talked about this before. It's not even in my notes. This is a freebie. There are two Israels talked about in the Scripture. There are the natural-born sons of Abraham, and then there is spiritual Israel. And if you want to know who spiritual Israel is, spiritual Israel are the sons of, of Abraham by faith, Galatians says. And what God desired was that the natural-born sons of Israel would be the same as spiritual Israel, but it never was. 
Spiritual Israel was always a minority, a remnant of natural Israel. Very, very few of the Jews loved God and followed God by faith and trusted him. Most of them, you know, they, they took claim to the fact that they were Jews and then lived in rebellion and disobedience and sinful lives before God, rejecting God. Anyway, enough of that. Number seven, however, all who receive him, all who put their faith in him will be called the sons of God. Verse 12, but as many as received him, and remember, he came to his own first, but they rejected him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here's what John says. He says, but you know, the Jews reject him, but as many as received him, as many as did not reject him, Jews, and again, his implication is non-Jews. His implication is Gentiles there. Remember, when is John writing this? Let's see if you remember. When is John writing this? At the very end of his life, probably towards the turn of the century, like sometime in the 90s. This is one of the last books written in your New Testament. Even though it finds finds its place number four, it's really one of the last books written. By this point, the, the disciples and the apostles fully understand that Jesus died for all men, not just for the Jews. It's not just about being Jewish. It's about those who put their faith in God, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. And they understand this. So when he says, but as many as received him, he's talking about the Jews who did not reject Jesus, but he's also talking about Gentiles. Whosoever believes, in John chapter 3, uh, verse 16, John would write, for uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, and so as many as received him. Now notice there's some qualifiers here that John gives us. He says, well, first of all, let me talk about this. He says he gave them the right to become children, even to those who believe in his name. So if you want to know what receiving God means, it means to believe in his name. To receive God means to have faith. It means to trust Christ by faith. And I'll talk more about this at the very, very end, but let me just state it now. Faith is not, listen, it is not an intellectual assent. It is, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, without faith, now listen, it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to him must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So the author of Hebrews equates believing in God and seeking God. Jesus always said, come and follow me come and follow me. So, so faith is not about having your, your, your intellect tuned to what's correct. Faith is about tuning your heart towards this one who claims to be God and, and following him and trusting him and seeking him. That's what faith is but I'm getting ahead of myself. Now notice the three qualifiers. He says there, he gives them the right to become the children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, most of the times when you see blood and flesh, you'll see it as uh, you'll see it combined together, right? 
My, this is flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood or bone of my bone at times. Flesh and blood are always, they're, they're so linked together because it's just talking about our humanity. So most commentators believe that what John is trying to say is that those who become children of God do so not by blood and blood referencing heritage. So in other words, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile, you're not saved by your heritage, not saved by what group you were born to. By, by flesh, they, commentators, and again, you know, there'll be people that disagree, and that's fine, but this is what I, I agree with those who say that the flesh there refers to parentage. In other words, you're saved not by who your parents are, not by, not by, um, not by blood, not by heritage, not by the will of flesh, not by your parents' desire for you to be saved. Listen to me carefully, every one of you. You know, I, I desire for my children to know and love and follow Jesus, but really, other than my prayers and my petitioning and moving God through my prayers, you know, Joy's got to make her own decision to follow Jesus. I can't make it for her. And all of you that, that have godly parents that love the Lord, you know, listen to me, young people. You, you, there, there is no riding on the coattails of your parents. There, there is no faith apart from your own faith. I'm telling you, the Bible is, is, I mean, we are a corporate entity in Jesus. We are in Christ, all of us who are in Christ. We're, we're, we're a, we are in Christ as a corporate group of people. But you know how you get into that corporate group of people? Because you put your own faith in the Lord Jesus. And, and people say that John is saying here, it's not by the will of your parents. It's not by the will of those who are your, the, those your grandparents, your parents. And finally, by, not by the will of God, but of God. In other words, you become the children of God, not because you make yourself a child of God by your own will, but because God makes you a child of his by faith. In other words, God responds to our faith and he makes us a child of God. Your faith, your humbleness, your desire to trust in Christ doesn't make you worthy of, of being a son of God. It's just that God has said, you know, when he says in Romans 9, he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. He's told us who he's going to have mercy on. The one who will humble himself and put his faith in Christ. It's not by your will, not by my will, but it's by the will of God that he makes us sons and daughters of his by faith. Now, the third part. So we've seen that God sends the spotlight. We've seen God sends the true light. Notice the text. Here's the next part. God bursts the word of God. Verse 14. I mean, it's kind of simple. It is huge. And the word became flesh. I mean, that's John's birth narrative, all right? And the word, this one that we've been talking about, this pre-existent God who created all things becomes flesh. And that simply means he became a person. We've talked about this so many times, but God the Son, the creator of all things, willingly humbles himself. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Paul in the, in the book of Philippians. He humbles himself, and he becomes like one of his creatures. And, and in the book of Philippians, Paul says he humble. I mean, he empties himself. He empties himself. Now, we've talked about this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I, I want to do it again. I want to reiterate it for you. And I believe that, that when Jesus became flesh, when the word became flesh, he, his limitations, his emptying himself, in, in my estimation, are, is the emptying himself of his divine abilities as God and taking on the limitations of our human creatureliness. 
Now, there's a theological word. Let's see. I, I did talk about this not too long ago. See how many of you remember. What's the theological word for, for this idea of God emptying himself? The silence is deafening. That's right. But there's another word, too. It's called kenosis. That's the bigger word right there. Let's hear, let's hear for John. That's good, John. That's good, John. Uh, the, but, but kenosis is a theological word for, um, actually, hypostatic union, John. We'll talk about it later. But that's about Jesus becoming man and not giving up his divinity. But this whole idea of emptying himself, the, the word is kenosis. It's a Greek word. It simply is translated into English. It, it means the emptying of himself. What did Jesus empty himself of? And we've talked about this. Some people believe the only thing he emptied himself of was the glory of heaven. Or, or maybe he emptied himself of his omnipresence because he couldn't be anywhere but where he was when he was tied, you know, to, to our creaturely physicalness, okay? I personally think the kenosis of Jesus is greater than that. I think the emptying himself is he emptied himself of his omnis. I don't think Jesus was omnipresent in his limitations. I don't think he was omniscient in his limitations and in his emptying himself. And I don't think he was uh, omnipowerful in his kenosis. I I don't think, I think he limited himself in those things willingly. But here I'm going to go a step further and I want to say, I believe, and again, you, you can disagree with me, okay, but listen, because all of this plays into this tremendous thing that God did for us. I think Jesus limited his consciousness. So when Jesus becomes a zygote, is it zygote or zygote? Zygote, I'll say zygote. Y'all are not very talkative today. So um, when Jesus becomes a zygote in Mary... In the divine second person of the Godhead has now coupled himself with our humanity. As he's developing as a zygote in his mother's womb, is he conscious? Does he have his omniscience? Does he know all things? Is he sitting there nine months twiddling his thumbs, thinking to himself and just, I mean, does he have all of his consciousness as a zygote, later on as an embryo, and then as a fetus before he's born? Does, does he have all of his consciousness? I'm going to tell you, in my estimation, I don't think he did. I think that was part of the limitations. I think that was part of the the humiliation and the sacrifice of God coupling himself to our creatureliness. And it's okay if you disagree, okay? Because a lot of smarter people than me disagree with me. But that's that's what I think. C.S. Lewis described the incarnation this way. He said, lying at your feet is your dog. Imagine for a moment that your dog and every dog is in deep distress. Some of us love dogs very much. If it would help all the dogs in the world to become like men, would you be willing to become a dog? Would you put down your human nature, leave your loved ones, your job, your hobbies, your art, your literature, your music, choose instead, now listen, choose instead of the intimate communion with your Beloved, think, think of the person you love the most. You're, you're, you're putting down your intimate communion with your beloved, the poor substitute of looking into your beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to speak or, or even to smile. Now, here's what C.S. Lewis says. Christ, by becoming man, limited the thing that to him was the most precious thing in the world, his unhampered, unhindered communion with the Father. Now, I, I wonder, I wonder whether, the, uh, whether C.S. Lewis meant it as I'm saying it here, or whether there was some other way in which the Father and the Son were, were hampered. But think about it for a moment, that for all of, all of eternity, 
now Jesus is willing to forego being able to communicate with the Father and has to grow and develop in consciousness just the same as all of us. And, and he develops in his consciousness, and as he does, the Holy this is Jimmy's reading it in, but the Holy Spirit is, is training and equipping, and, and, and he's discipling Jesus as he develops into this young man. So by the age of 12, Jesus knows fully who he is and fully is able to communicate to, to the great minds of, of Israel of the day about who he is and what he'd come to do. Theologians grapple with what happened uh, that day when the Word became flesh. And, but here's what they came up with. They came up with the hypostatic union. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. And somehow or another, you know, those two natures, you know, came to exist together in the person of Jesus. He didn't lay aside his divinity but at some level, he did empty himself. And I'm suggesting to you that the sacrifice of the incarnation is that Jesus laid aside many of his abilities as God. Purposely, consciously, he did it. No one took it from him. It was part of his gift to us. Now, so the word became flesh. You see that, right? Um, God burst the word. But here's some things I want you to note that John continues to say. In verse 14, he tells us that we, meaning the apostles, lived with Jesus and we saw him. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, he could mean us there like in all of humanity, but I don't think so. I think he means dwelt among us, the apostles, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, God becoming a person, and you need to understand, this, this is, this is what's, the, what's the adjective I'm looking for? This is going to be so rejected by so many in the Greek world because God becoming a person would be exactly the opposite. The body is, is material, it's evil, and so why would God ever couple himself to, to a body like this? And yet that's what John is affirming, that God was willing to couple himself with our humanity so that he could so that he could fix us, he could redeem us, he could save us from the death our sin was bringing to us. Now, we, the apostles, saw him in his glory. I think that's what John means. At the beginning of his first letter, just, you know, he would write three letters at the end of your Bible. And at the end of the Bible, the first letter begins like this. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we'd seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim, the word of life to you. This is what we proclaim to you, the word of life. We touched him. We saw him. We heard him. I mean, I'm telling you guys, can you imagine being the apostles and the true and living God becomes one of us and they get to live with him for three years and they get to experience Jesus. And what do they experience? Look at the text. They experience three things. They experience the glory of God, the grace of God, and the truth of God. You see that? He, says, he said, let me go back and read it again. He said, he lived among us. We saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw three things about Jesus when he lived with us. We saw his glory. And again, you know, what does it mean? Glory, grace, and truth. I'm going to suggest three things. And again, these may not be right, but these are what I'm suggesting to you. I think here's what he saw. When he says, we saw the glory of God, he's saying, we experienced the presence of God. You see, glory, the word glory means weight, right? We all, we've all heard that before. The glory means weight. So I think he's talking about we experienced the weight of God's presence. 
And we experience his grace. And by grace, I'm thinking that John means the beauty of God, the kindnesses of God, the goodness of God. Man, we got to experience all of that firsthand. And then we saw the truth of God, the reality of God, everything that's true about God. We got to experience it. We got to hear it and touch it. Then he goes on, but it wasn't just us who bears witness to that. We're not the only ones. And then he says, here's the next thing. John testified to him, verse 15. John testified about him, that is Jesus, and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So here's John. John's been out there in the wilderness. Remember, everybody's coming to him. I don't know if it's because he's so strange probably because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is convicting people, and they're coming, and they're listening to John's message, and John would say, I'm here to tell you that there's one coming after me. He's greater than me. I mean, I'm not even, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, okay? But what does John the apostle say? He says, John said that because he existed before me, and John knows I mean, he's six months older than Jesus. He, he's born before Jesus. He's conceived before Jesus. Why would he say he's greater than me because he existed before me? He says it because he understands. I mean, he's got some picture, some idea that, that this Jesus is the one who from the beginning, before the beginning, was the word of God. And John goes on, and he wasn't just to them that the grace and truth came. He brought grace and truth to all of us, for of his fullness we have all received. Now, here's where I think he goes from talking about himself to talking about you and me and all of us. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about this, but the law given through Moses was never meant to be grace or it was meant to be grace, but only in this way, only in this way. The, the law is righteous, but the law was never to be the grace that saves you. It was to be the grace that leads you to the one who saves you. How would you ever know you need a savior if you didn't know that you were a liar, if you didn't know that you were an adulterer at heart, that you didn't know that you were a murderer at heart? How would you know that you needed a savior if it wasn't for the fact that the law came to tell you and to reveal to our hearts how we need God, how we need, how we need his forgiveness. That's what the law did. The law came by Moses, and it was a good thing. Paul would say in numerous places, the law is good, but the law only is good in the sense that it leads us. It's only good to lead us to the one who is good, to the one who is gracious. And so John says, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ Jesus' death on the cross gives us our salvation. And finally, and, and this is great, John says, and the word was, was born to explain God to us. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, I know this is a corny illustration, and I've used it before, but it's, I, I got it a long time ago, and it's just stuck with me. If we were arguing about the color of Martian's eyes, and I said, Martian's eyes are red, and you adamantly disagreed with me, and you said, no, they're not. The eyes of Martians are green, and we're just going back and forth about green and red eyes of Martians. How would you or anyone else know really what color Martian's eyes were? 
for none of us have seen a Martian, right? How would we know what color his eyes are? The only way we'd know is for a Martian to come and say, well, you both got it wrong. My eyes are blue. Now, I know it's a corny illustration, but that is what John is saying about God. Here's what he's saying. You can argue about God over here, and you can argue about God over here, and you can say God's like this, and you can say God's like that. Jesus came, and he said, no, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. This, this, is, this is me. This is your God. This is the creator of all things. I so wanted to show the video I've showed a hundred times. If uh, you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Remember that video? This is so true. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, the Lord Jesus. Athanasius, who was a bishop in Alexandria, he was one of our early, early, early church fathers. He said, and I quote, some may ask, why did God not manifest himself by means of nobler, or of other and nobler parts of creation, such as the sun or the moon or the stars or fire or air, instead of mere man? In other words, why didn't God write it in the stars, right? Who hasn't thought that or said that? Anastasia, Athanasius goes on. He says, the answer is this. The Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal, to teach suffering people. For one, he wanted, for, for one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who need him. And I realize that Athanasius, his, his intent may be just a tad bit different, but I think Athanasius is on to it. The reason why Jesus came is so that there wouldn't be this great display about God, but so that we would actually know the heart of God by him living with us and, and suffering with us and teaching us. Now, I'll be the first to agree with you. What I've shared with you this morning, what John shares with us, and I've simply you know, spoken back to us with a few more words. It's a huge thing to swallow, and it's a huge thing to believe, isn't it? To believe that the God of the universe would become like us and live with us, and, but this is what John says, and this is why John writes. He writes so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have eternal life. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Mm-hmm.